Hello, I'm Devin, and you're listening to Tools and Craft. Today, I'm talking to Gretchen McCulloch. Gretchen is an internet linguist, which means she studies the language and people of the internet. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language, which is one of my favorite books that I've read in the past few years. Gretchen is also the resident linguist at Wired and the co-creator of Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. Language and writing have always been important, but I'd argue that they are even more important today because every year, more and more of us are spending our days typing into a computer, talking into cameras and exchanging information. So I'm really excited to talk to Gretchen about how language shapes the way we think and how we are reshaping language. So Gretchen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I've noticed that in some companies, people use emojis so much in Slack that it feels kind of like if you don't include an emoji, you must be angry or something. And I kind of refer to this as emoji inflation. First of all, like, does that resonate with you as something that you've seen elsewhere? And when this kind of inflation happens, how do people make up for it so that information isn't lost? This kind of emoji inflation reminds me of a linguistic phenomenon uh, known as the euphemism treadmill and the hyperbole treadmill. So it's this idea that as a, for example, euphemism gets used more and more for the properties of a thing that we feel kind of gross about or we feel kind of not great about. So if you have something like bathroom, which is itself a euphemism for maybe toilet, which is itself a euphemism for various other things. And as that gets used more and more, people start feeling even gross about the word word bathroom and they start saying, okay, well, maybe I'll use going to wash my hands or, you know, going to the little boys room or something like that (laughs) as another euphemism for the same thing. So the euphemism doesn't stay in one spot. It takes on the connotations of the thing that it was sort of trying to replace. And the same thing goes with hyperbole. So words like very and really used to be like super hyperbolic. You know, very comes from like, it's like verily as in true. And really, of course, comes from real, truly comes from true. And so this was really, truly, verily the thing, except now you're just like, oh yeah, I'm really tired. And we see the same thing going on in the modern day with a word like literally, which also has this meaning of real and true and physical and, and literally actually comes from letters, like to the letter of the of the word. And people use like, I'm literally, you know, I'm, I'm literally starving. And okay, you're not starving by a clinical definition of starving, but you are using hyperbole in a way that's very familiar to how hyperbole gets used. And then eventually, literally, and this, you know, this grinds a lot of people's gears, but it's been happening for centuries that, you know, literally doesn't actually mean you're literally starving. So if you want to convey that you're actually truly literally physically you know famished you need to use other words i think physically is beginning to take on some of this connotation i think actually is taking on some of this connotation and it's a natural cycle that goes through where the hyperbole gets inflated or goes on this sort of treadmill and it it takes on this connotation and you need another one to fill in the spot so i think that emoji and other types of ways of conveying emotion and intention online can also become part of this sort of treadmill or this sort of cycle of inflation where you eventually need to pass on to something else. Okay, that makes me feel a lot better. Because <laughs> I often found that uh, in like past companies I've worked in, I almost found it hard to communicate sincerely when I actually really liked something. And this happened with lol, for example. So lol is used, lol is often used these days to indicate sort of a, like, I'm just trying to indicate that I'm not being hostile. And it's 
you know, like, it sounds good, lol. It's just, okay, fine. It's it's just a it's softening marker. It's just conveying this sort of tone. And it's not literally conveying laugh out loud to a lot of people anymore. And that's because it goes through this cycle of, you know, at first you're actually using it convey, conveying laughing out loud or full-on laughter. And then you're using it to create convey some sort of, like, aspirational laughter. Like, I, I wish I was laughing. I'm not actually laughing, but you're still my friend and I want you to think that I'm laughing. <laughs> Yeah. Which is really nice of us, actually, if you think about it. Like, it's very pro-social. It's like, oh, I want you to think that you're funny. I know you're not. And then it gets used to sort of, you know, pave over a mode of awkwardness or to, which we also use laughter for, to be fair. Like, you don't always laugh at someone just because they're a comedian. You laugh at someone because, oh, I feel a bit awkward about this. And so lol goes through this inflation. And now these days, if I want to convey actually laughing out loud, like I am not using lol. Some people may still be doing so. But I think for a lot of people, if you want to convey genuine laughter, maybe you're doing a elongated version of lol, like LOL, LOL, Maybe you're doing LMAO. Maybe you're doing ha 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 ha. Ha ha ha. And a lot of cases, like a really sincere laughter is somebody like pausing to say, oh my God, I actually just spat coffee on my keyboard. Or some sort of like really long <laughs> description of what you're doing. And these just go through cycles. I've been trying to popularize LLOL for literally laughing out loud. Mm, how's it going for you? <laughs> so I don't quite have quite enough cachet, I think, to make that happen. I think B may also confuse people in comparison to the use of the elongated version. Yeah, uh. yeah, I know. I'll have to work on another <laughs> one. <laughs> it, it seems like sometimes this inflation varies a lot from group to group. So, for example... I have some friends who grew up outside of the U.S. And, and they often point out that Americans always say that things are great or amazing, even when they're neutral or good. Or, you know, like in Argentinian Spanish, they'll say re bueno like, instead of just bueno. So it's like very good as opposed mm -hmm. to just good. And they like put re in front of every adjective you can imagine. And then other types of Spanish don't have that. What will predict if a culture or a group of people will sort of inflate something faster than somebody else? I think there's there's inflating faster, but there's also just inflating on different words or in different domains. So if great is being used in American English or also Canadian English, I'm Canadian. For example, when I think of Germans using positive words for things, I think of them saying super a lot, which you wouldn't necessarily say in English, but is is also an inflation. It's just on a different word. And so you run into these sorts of communication things where someone's using a word that feels very literal to you and they're just using it. Or British people will say brilliant a lot. And they're just saying, oh, yeah, brilliant, good. <laughs> but if you're not used to that, you're like, wow, everyone thinks I'm brilliant. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's a lot of different domains that can happen in. And if running into one person using a word literally and one person using a word hyperbolically, that's where you get some of these clashes of, wait, how am I supposed to interpret this thing? That makes a lot of sense. And so it might feel like you go somewhere else and they're hyperbole of all out everything. But it's actually fine because what they're doing, not fine, that's that's putting too much judgment on it, but it's actually, they're just doing it in a different place than you are. So you notice it more. It's a difference. And I think that this is fairly common, at least in a lot of sort of modern day Western cultures. I wouldn't want to presume outside of that. But the idea that something being really good and that making a hyperbolic, hyperbolic claim about the goodness of something or the greatness of something is a desirable behavior to have. Any culture where that's likely to happen, if you have a culture where you don't want to praise things too heavily because that might cause bad luck or something, which is also true in some places, then maybe you wouldn't see that type of hyperbole. 
But you might see the same hyperbole in the other direction where certain types of phrases become sort of stock phrases that are quote unquote insults, but they're actually used in this sort of positive way to avert bad luck. Can you give an example? So I'm thinking of, and I wish I could actually remember the specific cultures that do this, but because I don't, but I think there's a culture where you don't want to praise children because that might attract bad luck or might attract jealousy or something like that. So instead of saying your child is like good or smart or kind or something, you could say that they're they're bad or they're dirty or they're short or they're one-eyed or something like there's a whole bunch of these sort of stock phrases that are used to talk about children that are sound very negative, but in the cultural context they're positive because you're trying to avoid them getting, you know, bad luck or childhood diseases or all of these sorts of things. So in that type of environment, I would expect that a word like great, fabulous, good, brilliant, super awesome probably wouldn't have that type of treadmill or in the in the positive direction, but you might end up something with that in the, in the negative direction where something that means dirty or scrawny or something would start taking on a like, oh, well, this is just what you call children because like that's the thing that everybody knows you're doing. I've also noticed that in my own experience, I feel more pressure, internal pressure to inflate the positive words that I'm using in situations where maybe I'm socially uncomfortable or I want I want to make sure that the other person knows that I like like them and I want them to know that I'm on their side or low context situations where I really don't know the person very well at all and I want to make sure that I come off as friendly. Let's say I have a taxi driver who's saying some crazy stuff that I really don't agree with at all, <laughs> but I'm in their car and I'm alone. I'll be like really positive and be like, wow, that sounds really interesting. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah, like, no. I'll have to check out your blog or whatever. <laughs> um, and like, so basically sort of a sense of social discomfort pushing me to be more positive than I actually feel internally. And I, I wonder if, because the internet is often so low context, do you see that occurring at a, a faster scale or am I overreaching there? What I have noticed is that there's a style that's sort of the opposite of the super positive, super enthusiastic style, which is a typographical minimalism where you don't use a lot of punctuation at all. You don't use a lot of capitalization. Maybe you use just sort of a line break or a period every so often, but you do have this sort of minimalist style. And I think of it as a sort of early 2010s Tumblr. Some people talk about it as a queer aesthetic. Some people talk about it as a Gen Z aesthetic. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's not doing a lot of the authoritative signals that we have of like, I'm going to use standard capitalization and punctuation because I want to show that I've mastered this set of norms that comes from a certain type of educational system or educational track. And using this, okay, I'm going to write everything in lowercase, I'm going to not put punctuation here, is saying if you don't have the cultural context to understand the norms of this particular community, I'm not interested in having you talk to me. So you can sometimes use the writing style itself to encourage or discourage people from engaging with you. Because if they find that hostile, or if they find that weird, if they find that alienating, you're like, great, I didn't want to talk to you anyway. And you can attract certain people to which kinds of context you're trying to to talk to or not. I think that some of the styles that get parodied as well, the sort of boomer style of all these dot, dot, dots and all of these like, you know, R-O-T-F-L-O-L emoji <laughs> and this sort of thing and, you know, capitals in lots of places. You know, if you don't communicate in that style, if you think that style is not something that you're into or something that you'd mock more than you would do, then that's a sign this isn't a social group that you particularly want to be a part of. So you can sort of use it to draw boundaries, even though the internet makes it hard sometimes to draw physical types of boundaries. I feel like there are a lot of different things that exist in the physical world that do this too, where, I mean, in verbal language, 
you know, you might have slang and in fashion, you might have some style like goth makeup, for example, a lot of people find it like really unappealing. And that's, I think part of the appeal of doing it is so that you separate yourself out and you say, Hey, like I want to be with a totally different group. Yeah. And, and like, there's also these sort of physical cues of like, if I were to try to go and hang out with the teenagers at my local high school, they'd look at me like, you're an adult, you look like a creep. <laughs> and so you have that sort of physical cue. Whereas if I'm like watching teens on TikTok doing their videos, they can't tell that I'm there and they can't tell that I'm not their age. And so you do, especially when you have sort of age gated boundaries, there's a huge incentive for youth to engage in behavior and linguistic styles that older people are going to find off putting because they want to put the older people off. Right. They don't want them involved in whatever they're doing. Right. Like, you know, when your parents get Facebook, maybe you don't want to be on Facebook with your teenage friends anymore. That's really understandable. <laughs> to stretch the inflation metaphor to its limits, like if there, if we have inflation of language, do we also see deflation of language ever? We do sometimes. And I think a really illustrative example of this is with the exclamation mark. You may remember back in like the 90s, the sort of quintessential internet use of the exclamation mark was tons of exclamation marks. And then people would occasionally accidentally type the number one in the middle of their <laughs> strings of exclamation marks. Remember this? Yeah. And then that itself became parody behavior where sometimes people would write out the word O-N-E or 11, E-L-E-V-E-N, 11-T in the middle of their strings of exclamation marks. I don't remember that one. That's great. Okay, well, I'll start doing that again. <laughs> My friends were doing this. <laughs> but you do you do still see it occasionally um, showing up. So like exclamation mark, exclamation mark, one, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, 11T, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And this was this like internet behavior. And this was cool for, I don't know, a few years. And then it got to the point of parody where now people were putting the, the one and the 11T and stuff in to be like a hyperbolic, I'm not actually excited about this, I'm doing sort of fake excitement. And then, if you will, the exclamation mark stock crashed. <laughs> and people stopped doing a lot with exclamation marks for several years in the 2000s. Like, really not a whole lot with exclamation marks. And then around, I think this this was around... 2015, 2016 or so, because it was like while I was in sort of the early stages of writing because internet, <laughs> just how I'd mark every thing in time now. Uh, there was an Atlantic article about, you know, people occasionally using three exclamation marks and how this was this new thing. And I was like, but, but like people were also doing this in the 90s. It just like stock crashed and then came back. And in the meantime, this whole time, you did have single exclamation mark, which is sort of on a different path. And this is the sort of single exclamation mark. Thanks you know, one exclamation mark, it just seems sort of polite and it seems sort of cheery and breezy. And that one has continued this whole time. There's a paper by Erica Derricks looking at it in business email and how people will often use it to sort of soften polite requests or make things seem a bit more cheerful. But the multiple exclamation mark use really had this decade or so of fallow period and then came back by people who had maybe sort of forgotten or maybe just like, you know, how genes go in and out of how wide they are, had gone in and out of, of trend. Um, and like now the bell bottoms and the and the multiple exclamation marks are coming back. And then you see sort of strings of, of long exclamation marks, but it might not stay there, right? Because 
eventually it'll be like, okay, multiple exclamation marks. These are kind of cheesy. We use this too much. Are they actually sincere? Probably not. And so maybe you're 2030 or something. It's like an exclamation mark stock crash again or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, and I think we are also currently in the, you know, early mid stages of a stock crash around the face with tears of joy emoji. Hmm. So this was the most popular emoji for years and years and years, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. This was the most popular emoji. And then it starts going down. And especially younger people are saying, we're using different smiling emoji to convey strong emotion, either using loudly sobbing face to convey like, this is so amazing, I'm overwhelmed, which isn't a smile, or they're using uh, the smiling face one with the kind of the eyes that look like the greater than less than signs or some of the other ones like the skull for like I'm dead with with laughter um various other ones that I probably don't even know and then you get this sort of panic of like older people being like wait wait but I was like I thought we were cool with the face with tears of joy because you know, when you get older you stop maybe paying quite as much attention to the sort of micro trends because you have a life and you have friends now uh, and you don't feel like you need to maintain your social standing quite as tightly which I think is very healthy it's it's okay to be an older person I like not being a teenager <laughs> <laughs> like people are like oh the teenagers are doing this should I stop doing this so that I don't seem out of date and it's like but yeah but like do you want to go back to being a teenager when all you literally had to do was care about popularity and you didn't have a hobby or like friends who just liked you for who you are? Because you can just also just accept that you're an adult and not be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to defend not being cool. I, I, am, I am in my late 20s now. And so I'm starting to see my friends sort of split between, well, there, there's a split between people who just kind of don't give a shit and they just keep using whatever they were using. And then the ones who are like, wait, I'm not 30 yet. I'm still young. And they make an effort of, you know, keeping track of the, the TikTok memes and the slang that younger kids are using and the emojis younger kids are using. And, and I mean, it's, it's pretty, I, I, I will, you know, withhold my own judgment because I feel, <laughs> but I also, uh, I, it's entertaining it's, to watch to say the least. Yeah. It's, it can be disorienting to be, oh yeah, like me and my friends used to be the arbiters of what was cool and now we're not anymore and we have to pay attention to these younger people instead. And your consolation can be, it will definitely happen to these younger people too, that in other 10 years, they will also not be the arbiters of what's cool. Like you don't get to stay there for your entire life. And also I think as somebody who was like never really that cool, it's a great relief to me that my peers aren't either. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this this going this thing going on with the emoji in terms of like whether they're positive whether they're laughing and whenever there's a new sort of face emoji that one will often catch on pretty fast because people are sort of desperate for oh what's a new thing that we could do with emoji because the ones that have been around for a long time have gotten kind of tired and i haven't yet seen this turn into an emoji backlash of we're not going to use emoji at all anymore because emoji remind us of the you know 2010s and they're so retro and we're not doing them. But I wouldn't be surprised if it happened someday, right? Because that's another place you could go. You could say, oh, you know, we don't actually use emoji anymore. We only use plain text emoticons because they're so retro and they're so cool and we love everything else about the 90s and the early 2000s. You know, bring back low rise pants and also bring back text based emoticons. I wouldn't be shocked if it happened, but obviously you can never actually predict something like this. At what point does it become a cycle? Oh, and, and if it does come back, it'll come back, but with its own evolution and it'll be done slightly differently, but with sort of a, it'll never be exactly the same as the thing in the past. Right. And then even if emoji do go out for another 10 years or something, then maybe they come back in because now they're retro. So there's not just sort of one thing. There is a whole bunch of potential places for these things to go. If you see it as, okay, language is always a moving target. It's a 
living thing that exists in the minds of living beings and nothing about human life or human society, human culture is exactly the same from one generation to the next and language just comes along as part of that. So interruptions are a lot more common on Zoom and to some extent phone call, but especially internet mediated conversations, sometimes just because, you know, the internet dies or there's a lag. And so in in face-to-face conversation, I find interruptions to be just incredibly rude and like the person usually is doing it intentionally or like can't control the fact that they want to say something versus on Zoom, I'll usually assume that it's just the internet connection or something like that. And I sort of try to adjust and realize they probably aren't aren't trying to do it. Have you seen, especially in the last year and a half with people spending a lot of their time on, on Zoom, have you seen interesting behaviors in how people handle interruptions and ha- how has that evolved? Well, so we're going to take a step back and talk about what we sort of mean by interruptions and how different, because there are already different styles of the ways people deal with them. So the linguist Deborah Tannen talks about two different styles of behavior, which is definitely continuum, but you know we can talk about sort of each end of the continuum first. And this is a difference between high involvement conversation style and high considerateness conversation style. And High involvement conversation style, you know, shows that you're engaged and shows that you're paying attention and shows that you're interested in someone's what someone's saying by being very involved in their in what they're saying, in sort of anticipating what they're saying and and like reacting at the exact right point, even sort of anticipating what they're saying so close that you manage to finish their sentence with them in the exact way that they were doing it, and being very on the ball in terms of what someone's saying. High considerateness conversation style is about leaving space between what people are saying, giving each thing that someone says sort of full air in terms of, okay, someone's going to take their turn and then I'm going to give it a little pause and then someone else is going to take their turn and sort of giving everything in their room to breathe. And neither of these are wrong. There's not a problem with either of these. And it is a a continuum. So you can find yourself, okay, most of the time I'm at the considerateness end of the spectrum, but sometimes I end up talking to someone where I'm like, oh my gosh, why are you not saying anything? And it's because they're waiting for a pause that's even longer. Or most of the time you can be at the high involvement end of the spectrum. And then sometimes you can find yourself talking to someone. You're like, I can't get a word in edgewise. You're talking so much. (laughs) You're interrupting me. And this can definitely interact with other things that are going on. But it's useful if you're talking with someone who has a different conversational style from you to sort of pay attention to that and pay attention to if you're the only person talking and the other person isn't getting a, a, a turn in edgewise, or if the other person's sort of waiting for you to to say something and you can try saying it even though they 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 seem like they're still talking. One of the sort of stereotypes that, that Tannen mentions as far as helping people get a, a grasp on which groups are associated with which thing is that New Yorkers tend to be high involvement and Californians tend to be high considerateness. You were saying, people interrupt so much in in conversation and it's bad. And I was like, yeah, well, not where I'm from. (laughs) So if we're coming to electronic types of communication, coming to it with a background first of like, okay, well, what happens offline and what types of conversation styles can cause friction even between different types of offline groups? And I'm going to give you some space to talk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I I see what you mean. I guess what I'm talking about is interruptions in which someone cuts off a full sentence and sort of changes the direction, which feels a little different than the high 
the the uh, high involvement style you're talking about, which is like you're saying a sentence and I'm going to add on to the end and that kind of thing. It's more of like, hey, I'm going to like hijack this conversation and go somewhere else with it because I don't like where you're going. Is that also a, more of a difference though? And maybe that is less rude in high involvement or otherwise styles? I think that one of the things that I find challenging about electronic communication as a relatively high involvement person is that because you potentially have like a half second, like a second or so of lag, you don't have as many obvious cues to, is this person going to continue their thought or have they finished? And is it my turn now? Especially if you're used to having those pauses be really tiny, you're trying to sitting there being like, am I, am I allowed to break in or am I not? And like, is this person just continuing what they're saying because they're waiting for me to break in, which is just a very high involvement thing to do? Or is this person actually have a thought they're trying to continue? So I think that especially Zoom in particular as a platform, which tends to sort of automatically mute or semi-mute other people when one person is talking. I saw somebody complaining about this in terms of like, whoever designed this feature for Zoom has never met Jewish people, um, which is also a group that's stereotypically very high involvement. There are lots of groups of people that are high involvement. It's not only one group, but it's sort of two types of behaviors that are sort of found along a spectrum in various groups of people. So I, I find that particular thing harder and other platforms that don't automatically mute people while someone else is talking, I find it a little bit easier to sort of break in if I want to. And also one of the ways that people regulate whose turn it is to talk is through things like gestures and eye gaze and things like that. So if you're sitting there with sort of your hand outstretched and you're trying to make eye contact with the speaker, that might indicate, oh, I'm trying to break in. And yeah, you kind of have that in a video call. Some people use like unmuting as a sort of lightweight signal that you want to take a turn. So if everybody except for the speaker or, or like main two speakers are, are are unmuted and then I unmute myself, maybe that's a term that I'm trying to talk as well. And I've seen some people sort of notice those types of things and sort of help facilitate conversations that way. But I think it is something that these really subtle delays that we don't really think we notice in a conversation can create this sort of added layer of friction where you're not sure if someone's trying to break in or not. Yeah, I've definitely done the the flicker, the mute kind of thing to, to mm -hmm. show that like, hey, I have something to say, but also I'm not, I don't need to cut you off right now, but just know that I have like a thought that I want to add. You're mentioning it now makes me realize like, it's not actually clear to me that everyone sees that signal. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think definitely some people do. I've, I've noticed it works often, but it also it doesn't work all the time. So not everyone necessarily sees the signal. Not everyone is necessarily looking for the signal. I've noticed sort of status differ I can't tell if it's status differentiation or age differentiation because so often that's correlated but if I'm in a group of people say we're at a kind of zoom social at a virtual conference or something like that and there's like you know eight people or something all of the like students and junior people will be keeping themselves on mute the entire time unless they have like a specific thing to say whereas the Older people who are more also likely to have higher social standing in this situation, they have a certain amount of seniority, will just sort of leave themselves off mute the whole time. And it's not clear to me if that's because the younger people have been attending Zoom school and they've been attending all of these sorts of meetings where they're not expected to contribute. And so they're keeping themselves on mute a lot of times for that. Or whether there's a sense of like, this doesn't feel like my sort of home turf and I don't feel like I have the right to stay unmuted because I don't feel like I have that much to contribute to this conversation in this social setting. I think you'd need to do a certain amount of virtual fieldwork with younger people who are in a group conversation where it's all 
you know, 19 year olds and they're all friends with each other. And at that point, does everybody mute or do people sort of take it in terms depending on social status? Because I, I do think if you were saw, had a group of like 40, 50 something professors who were all very senior, they probably none of them would mute. <laughs> but I don't know exactly what the emergent behavior is there among younger people who are used to muting a lot more proactively and maybe have a keyboard shortcut set up for muting. Uh, I'm not quite sure where that behavior is going, but I think it's interesting. That's fascinating because I'd actually always assumed that it was just people who have spent more time in meetings in general, sort of, this is now me putting my own color on it and just how I've always thought of it, which is like, they know that muting when you're not talking is a good idea because something could be making a noise in the background at any time, or your audio might be weird and like creating some feedback that you don't realize. And so it's just generally good to be muted unless you're saying something. And, And like people who haven't spent as much time on Zoom, who I think correlate with older people, but it's not always true, wouldn't know that. And so that's why they don't. And then they have like a weird echo in the background or something like that. Right. But then if they do mute, they're not as good at taking themselves off mute. So there's also the sort of you're on mute, you're on mute thing. So it's it's sort of what reflexes you're used to having. But often if you're in a conversation, so if you're in a group of like eight people and sort of if you have somebody who's like chairing a meeting with eight people, they'll probably stay off mute for most of the time because they're intervening when so after somebody else is talking right like they maybe they're muting if somebody else is giving a report or something but they might stay off mute the whole time even if they in another context they would mute themselves right so that's partly a social status thing where if you have the status of chair of the meeting you have the right to stay off mute for more time than somebody who's just delivering a few reports or asking a few questions here and there yeah but i think it's something sense. where I think it's something where the norms are still in flux, right? So I think it's a combination of these things. And in another five years or so, maybe we'll be able to disentangle them a little bit more. There's also other correlations where if you're if you're running a conference, let's say, you've probably organized your whole day and told your spouse and whatever to like, please don't come in the room because I'm running this thing. It's important. Versus if you're just a participant, you also might be like in your pajamas, cooking lunch, while you listen to the lecture or whatever it is. Um, and so there's, there's other things going on in there too, but it's really very multifaceted and I hadn't thought about the, the status aspect before. And there's also a status aspect in terms of how likely are you to have like separate office space in your house that you can guarantee is going to be relatively quiet, right? Whereas if you're a student, maybe you're living with your parents or maybe you have like three roommates you ha- and you're like in a corner of your bedroom or something and you're in your like kitchen and there's other people in your house going to and fro, the the higher, the more money you have, basically, the more potential you have to control your surroundings in, in, in an audio sense, in an audio meeting. So if put like putting yourself on mute because you're sort of worried about what your background sounds are going to be is also sort of a factor of like, do you live in a tiny apartment with three roommates who are going to potentially make a lot of noise? Or do you live in a big house in the countryside and you have a whole office by yourself and it's not going to be loud? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, there's like so there's so many dynamics that go in there. And because because it's so multifaceted, it's also very easy to pull the wrong interpretation out. You could be like, oh, you know, this this 19 year old kid has tons of sound in the background. They're not taking this conversation seriously when no, they just don't have that much money. So they don't have you know, that they maybe are still in college. They don't have any income. Uh, and so they they don't have a place to do it. And this is actually the quietest part of their house. And they were really worried about this for the 30 minutes before the call. 
Right. Like maybe they're living with a whole extended family. They've got, you know, kids or something going around. Like there's there's so many factors that can be in someone's life that, you know, taking it as a sign of like, oh, we could just do this seriously. And I think this comes into some of the discussion about like going back to the office and to what extent people like that or don't like that. I mean, yeah, if you have a whole home office space, that's like a whole room that you can set up with an extra monitor and all of this stuff. Um that's a very different prospect from like, oh, I don't want to head back to the office. I've got this nice office space from, okay, well, I've been doing work from my bed for the whole pandemic because that's literally the only space that's available. So what are people dealing with in contrast to being able to work from somewhere that isn't the home? It's a great point. It seems like a, a common theme of a lot of your work um, is that we should just be more generous when we interpret what people mean. Uh, and sometimes it's not well-deserved, right? Because sometimes people are actually just jerks. But most of the time, they're just doing the best they can. And just because they said something in a way that you you interpreted one way, like try to think of the best possible interpretation. I think part of the reason why I try to focus on that message, which like, yes, people can be jerks, is also that there's so much discourse around language that talks about it in terms of, well, if this person doesn't do this one thing that I was taught to do in my grade 10 English class, then they're wrong and they should be not listened to for the rest of their life. And it's like, really, can we not think of better ways to interact with each other as humans? <laughs> and if you're using language as an excuse to pin jerkish behavior on, just stop and think about what you're doing with your life and think about your life choices and what led you to that place and what you could be doing differently. There are lots of different ways of interacting with the world. And if someone is genuinely using language to be a jerk, they're also doing other things that are jerkish. You know, they're not listening to people's boundaries. They're not listening to people's consent. They're overriding people's, you know, personal space and lots of these types of things. But there are lots of ways in which humans just grow up subtly differently. They have subtly different sets of norms, whether in terms of turn-taking or in terms of, I get a lot of people angsting about emails and how to do emails um, and worrying about sort of cl cliche stock social phrases that people use in emails, you know, just circling back or just bumping this onto your radar again, <laughs> or just wanted to pick your brain, like all of these sorts of stock phrases people use in emails because they show that you're part of a social group. And I spent a lot of time trying to convince people that, especially if you're a professor, if you're a boss, if you're a hiring person and you deal with a lot of cold emails from people who you don't know who are significantly junior to you, it's really unfair to have this sort of hidden curriculum idea of, I want everybody who emails me to address me as dear so-and-so, and if they say hi, then they're being unpardonably rude. Well, how are mm -hmm. they supposed to know that? <laughs> You know, hi is really normal in a lot of other contexts, like even hey, which gets some flack from people for being like, oh, you know, this one's kind of informal. This is pretty normal in a lot of contexts. There isn't a context in which deer is particularly normal in most other environments in, you know, 2021, <laughs> that this is like this this thing that we use in other social media platforms. You don't call people dear. And I hear from a lot of younger people that they're resistant to the advice. They've seen the advice to address letters and emails as dear, but they're like, oh, no, this is uncomfortable. It's weirdly intimate. It would be mm. inappropriate in the same way that addressing my boss or my professor or my manager as my darling. Like, we're not on those terms. <laughs> they're not my dear. Like, maybe you can say this to your grandma, but like, why would you call someone that in a work context? Like, wow, sexual harassment complaint, anybody? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and that's something that does not occur to people who are from the sort of letter writing generations when, of course, you just begin a letter with the year because that's what you do. Even though when you pause and look at it, you're like, actually, maybe that is kind of weird. It reminds me of the uh, Hamilton song, Your Obedient Servant, uh, which is like all about this. And yep. I, I think it's like at the end of some letter that, you know, Alexander Hamilton is writing to one of his other one of his other founding fathers or something is or to Aaron Burr, I think. And it's Yeah, to Aaron Burr, the the song in the musical is it's really great because it's all your obedient servant, you know, A dot Burr, A dot Ham. But they end this, you know, very obedient servant letter correspondence by challenging each other to a duel. <laughs> like that's not obedient servanthood. <laughs> right. But it's I, I imagine that was the normal way to write back then, even if you hated the person's guts. Right. Like at the time, that was just a stock social phrase, sort of like saying sincerely um, or saying like thanks or best, even if you don't actually particularly want to thank them or if you're not actually wishing them your best. <laughs> uh, you're just saying this thing because that's what people say in the same way that like modern day people, if they say bye or goodbye, they're not actually thinking God be with you, even though that's what it came from. They're like, no, I just I just said bye. Like, I'm not I'm not even religious. Like, what what is this? You know, there are these phrases that get interpreted as as phatic, P-H-A-T-I-C, which is this sense of like the literal meaning has sort of washed out through repeated use. And what's left with is the social meaning of this is what people mean when they say this particular string of words. Even if when you look at the particular string of words, you're like, what in there actually means that? Uh, it's the same thing with a phrase like, how do you do? Where, you know, we know what that means at a phatic level. But if you look at the the actual words, it's like, how do I do what? <laughs> how am I how am I doing anything? One difference that I've come across in my day-to-day -day life is that some cultures use voice me uh, messages a lot more than others. So my Argentinian boyfriend's family uses WhatsApp voice messages all the time. It's like the primary way they communicate. Whereas I feel like probably most of my friends and family have probably never used that feature and maybe don't even know that it exists, even though they use WhatsApp pretty often. And in some ways, I adore voice messages. They're like really nice for getting across more emotional things or stories and things where you want to get a little bit more emotional color and tone to it. But they're like really very frustrating when someone's like sending you the address of their house or something or, you know, trying to schedule <laughs> dinner uh, and be like, we're going to meet at this restaurant at this time. And in these cases, I just want to be able to like copy and be able to paste it into Google Maps or whatever. In this case, I yep. have a critique of the voice message be because it's like it, it feels like it's getting in the way of the the purpose of the com of the communication. How would you approach a conversation? And be like, "Hey, I love your voice messages, but when you send it so that we can go schedule an airplane flight or something like that, it makes it a little bit harder." <laughs> Is that an appropriate thing to do, or am I like totally missing the point? One of the things that I try to say on the flip side of like encouraging people to be more generous in terms of what we can accept and what we can tolerate and what we can hear from other people is also saying that like if you have a particular need, you can try to communicate that without making it about this person is wrong or this thing that someone is doing is wrong or this this thing that someone is there. Like, you know, without making it a sort of essentialist critique that there's a right way or a wrong way of doing things. You can make it more about yourself as saying, you know, 
when we're talking about a restaurant to meet each other at, one of the things that I really like to do is copy paste the name of that restaurant into Google Maps. So that makes it really easier for me. Uh, and I'm always worried when someone's telling me it in audio that maybe I'm going to misspell it or I'm going to mishear it. So it'd be really helpful to me if in this one case where I need to copy paste things, maybe you could send that in writing. You know, all of the other cases, like I love it when you tell me stories in, in, in audio messages. It's not like, you know, why do you always do this and this is wrong? It's <laughs> here's this one thing that's really useful for me in the same way as if you were, you know, staying at someone's house and you wanted to ask for an extra blanket because you were kind of cold that night, right? You'd, you'd put a lot of politement, politeness in that. You'd say, oh, you know, do you happen to have another blanket? Not like you keep your house too cold and I need another blanket because <laughs> you're wrong. You could, you know, sort of do that in a way that takes care of the relationship that you have with that person while still advocating for a particular need that you have, which, you know, maybe is an extra blanket or an extra pillow or something that would make you more comfortable, that is also not trying to do it in ways that are like imply terrible things about their housekeeping practices. <laughs> I like that a lot. That reminds me a lot of um I think it's a nonviolent communication tactic that's like you should say I feel as opposed to you are you right. Know, like, I feel this way when this happens as opposed to you are a jerk because you do this all the time. You know, when we're doing things like negotiating how a particular thing is used, I mean, maybe they're also thinking when you send them messages and you tell them stories or something in text, they're like, oh, I wish she'd send it to us in a voice message because then I would know how <laughs> she was saying it. You know, so maybe there is some sort of way where you could reflect the strengths of both mediums. In this context of saying what's useful here uh, and maybe also look into some of the reasons why someone isn't sending something in text. You know, people have different levels of comfort with typing, especially with touch typing and typing on a smartphone. Like I know I've seen older people do like I didn't think people actually seriously did like audio searches <laughs> because for me, I'd always just rather type in a Google search. But I've seen people, you know, just talk into their phones and often people who are less comfortable with touch typing. I actually do a lot of voice to text type <laughs> typing because I don't like to type with touch type typing. And the result of this is that sometimes you'll get the weirdest typos from me. And there's probably people who really are like, why does Devin do this? Like she is so inconsiderate. It's like really selfish. She's, she's making it easier for herself and harder for me. So rude. But I mean, like there's, there are lots of ways of, of interacting with people. You know, they're, you know, there are other things that I do that make things easier for me <laughs> rather than rather than for somebody else. The and just sort of figuring out because and we're we're at a stage which is sort of an unfortunate stage where I think a lot of people are realizing that like, hey, you know, when you are criticizing people's language, they do sort of take it as a personal attack, and there is so much baggage around language being used as sort of a tool for elitism. And so even if you say something innocuous about someone's language, like I really like observing things of people's languages. I'm like, oh, what an interesting, you know, word you have there. What an interesting value you said there. And people still take that as a criticism because we're at a point in a society where so much of linguistic commentary has been criticism and has been, you know, uh, or if there are, you know, two or three pronunciations of a given word, people will be like, well, which one's right? And it's like, that's just not a very interesting question. There, it can be the case that one of them is more characteristic of one region or another region, or one of them is more characteristic of one age group versus another age group, or one of them is more characteristic of like people who learned words through reading <laughs> versus people who learned words through speaking, uh, which I think is pretty relatable to a lot of people. Um, but that doesn't mean that there has to be a single right answer. Like there's 
language is this sort of richly textured fabric that has lots of different variation within it. It's not just this one like, here's this one thread that everybody has to sort of climb onto. And so it's hard sometimes for people to hear messages around like, oh, I didn't understand you when you said that. Can you say it again? Without hearing that as criticism and just hearing that as, sorry, it was kind of loud here and I didn't didn't catch that. Or, oh, how interesting. I'd say that word differently. But that doesn't mean that either of us has to be wrong. Yeah, that's very interesting. That, that, that history of the critique so often being based in judgment and class resulting in in future critique or not critiques, future comments uh, being perceived in that light as well, even though they are not critiques at all. They're they're neutral or maybe even positive. You know, it's sort of like how like there are a lot of topics where people have sensitivity because they've gone through a whole life of being hearing negative messages about what they're eating or what they're wearing or something like that. And if you hear like one more thing about like your body or your you know, your culture or something like that, that you've been criticized a lot for, even if that one thing feels sort of innocuous, it's the sort of straw on the camel's back that you have this reaction to that's not just based on the one thing, it's based on the whole lifetime of other things you've also heard in conjunction with it. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me of a little bit of this um, thing I've heard of called the difference between ask culture and guest culture. Are, are you mm. familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for, for people listening, ask culture is about people who who are very comfortable just asking for something and they say and if you say no that's fine uh they just said it they asked it and now you move on and then guest culture is a little bit more of like you you would not ask for something unless you think that the answer will be yes a classic like clash of culture here would be that uh, an ask person asks someone from a guest culture background hey i'm in town can i stay at your house this weekend and the guest culture person's like, wow, that's so rude. They're, you know, they, they're they're barging in. They think that they can just stay at my house whenever they want. I don't even know this person very well. And the ask person would be totally fine with just a no. And they'd be like, okay, cool. I'll find a hotel or, or whatever it is. Um, and uh, neither of them is entirely wrong in either way. It's just that what the expectation is what matters and what they're used to. And certain types of communication might be more effective for certain types of goals, but it's not like one is like superior to the other in every way yeah exactly and it sort of it depends on what what expectation someone's coming in with and especially for for guest culture which often thrives in very sort of densely networked communities where people have been a part of the community for a long time because you have to have a very sophisticated idea of what you could reasonably guess which requires a sort of dense amount of shared cultural context whereas in environments where a lot of people have arrived from multiple different cultural contexts, you end up having kind of veering more towards ask culture because you can't assume that people are sharing the same set of guesses at all. People who identify as extremely online seem to really relish the idea that internet communication evolves quickly. And there's this implication that it evolves more quickly than offline language. And to me, that feels pretty accurate. But I'm curious, is there research that compares the speed of evolution of online versus offline languages? You know, I have been looking for research on this topic uh, for quite a few years now, and I don't, I haven't managed to find any that's sort of that unambiguous. What, what I can say is that there, there is a sense in which particular words or particular expressions can go viral online in the same way that a funny video or whatever can go viral, and lots of people can see them, and lots of people can can witness them. Now, whether that leads to durable language change or just a, you know, here's this thing everyone's talking about for this week and then it's over. 
is a different sort of question, right? So on the one hand, you know, individual words or individual phrases or something can spread without the need of an intermediary. You don't need to get approval from the New York Times in order for your TikTok to become viral and lots of people to see it. You do end up often getting sort of news news aggregator sites sort of posting like here's the Vox explainer of this word. <laughs> so, you know, the the media has this has this sort of role as well of bringing it to yet another audience. The the question of whether something is actually likely to get picked up by people or is actually likely to become a durable part of people's vocabulary is a more complicated question because people tend to get exposed to new items of vocabulary from people who are sort of outside of their main social group. So, you know, this concept of strong ties versus weak ties. This is the idea from, I think, a sociologist called Granovetter, where you some people that you know are strong ties. These are people that you know well and that you often have lots of mutual friends in common with. Other people are weak ties who you don't maybe don't know quite as well and you also don't have a lot of mutual friends with. So if you are a lawyer and you have lots of other lawyer friends and they all sort of know each other and travel in the same circles and you also have like one friend who's an artist, that's sort of your bridge across to the artist group. And then your artist friend presumably also knows lots of other artists. But for you, maybe they're the only artist you know, maybe you're the only lawyer they know, and they're you're sort of making that weak tie bridge between social groups. And the weak tie bridges are really interesting and they're really important when it comes to diffusion of new ideas and new uh, new words and other types of share uh, other types of new knowledge. So weak ties are more likely to lead to a new job because your friends probably already know the same hiring opportunities that you're aware of. Whereas a weak tie, somebody who's in a completely different social group most of the time, but they know you, is more likely to have access to this whole other social group's potential for maybe someone's looking for somebody in your exact position. And weak ties and strong ties also have this really interesting role in language change. So weak ties are more likely to introduce a new word to a community because they have this exposure to whatever other social group is potentially using that word. But they're also, if you just hear a word from a weak tie, you're less likely to pick it up and actually use it than if you also hear it from strong ties. So uh, there's a study that was done on this on Twitter, actually, because on Twitter you can see who follows who, which is a great gift for social networking researchers, uh, <laughs> because trying to figure out like who knew, knows who was actually really hard before internet studies. I don't know if we realize how hard that was. Like, you do these studies where you'd have to get, you go into like a high school, right? And you'd ask each student to list like five friends or 10 friends. And then you'd like draw this map of like who knew who based on which friends people listed. But of course, you wouldn't be listing all of your friends the way you can on a social media site. You'd just be picking like 10 people, which would be sort of a feasible number of people to crunch from a data perspective before we had much computing power. <laughs> it's really changed a lot. So in this Twitter study that I'm thinking of, they found that people were most, and they could also see sort of which, like when a new word was was being introduced to sort of spreading, who you were most likely to see a word from. And so you were more likely to see a word first from somebody who's a weak tie, who had different social networks to you, primarily. Um, but you were more likely to actually start using the word yourself if you'd seen it from a strong tie. So you know, something just just something becoming viral doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to use this particular word with my friends unless I also think my friends have also seen this viral video and that we all have this shared context if we've all seen it. And then the other thing was this effect of, you know, how had people seen this word or not on on Twitter and like 
you know, who who they were following and stuff like that. That only held for words that seem to be take advantage of the online medium somehow or of the written medium somehow. So things like acronyms, things like phonetic respellings of words. So this is stuff like gonna spell G-O-N-N-A, although gonna is, you know, achieved full saturation. Not that that one's not spreading. But I think the example they had in the study was Sutton, S-U-T-T-I-N for something, which hasn't achieved full saturation. So that can sort of spread. And those are things that are very characteristic of the written medium, which is what you're seeing if you're on Twitter. Whereas other words, words that are sort of just as easily pronounceable out loud versus written online, those didn't seem to have this direct correlation between whether or not people were seeing them on Twitter, which suggests that maybe we're missing like half the data on those words because people were also getting exposed to those offline. There's this sort of interesting effect. I I have a kind of personal example on the, you know, how do you get people to adopt a word perspective? (laughs) Earlier this year, I ran an online conference about linguistics communication. So for people who do linguistics communication online, I thought, well, we're still in a pandemic. People are attending online conferences. I'd like to do one that's sort of more of a model for how you could do a really good online conference that has a lot of social interaction and also brings together a group of people that hasn't historically had their own conference. And this was people who are doing linguistics communicators, you know, people who have linguistics blogs or YouTube channels or podcasts or all of these sorts of things. Uh, and there were about 100 of us. And I called this group, uh, this this style Lingcom, which is based off SciCom for science communication. You have linguistics communication. And I'd been sort of using the word Lingcom for quite a while, for several years, since 2017 at least, in various contexts with other types of workshops that I was running and stuff like that. But it seemed to be that having everybody at this conference together was what made Lincom sort of escape from its, uh, you know, initial <laughs> initial creator. And now I just see people using it on Twitter, like they're not even talking to me. They're not talking about my <laughs> about me. They're just talking about their own thing, and they're talking about it as sort of this existing phenomenon that everyone thinks exists. And I think it was partly like not just having one person who they kind of knew saying this word, but being at a conference where. That everybody else that was at the conference was also using this word and was also knew what it meant. And so you didn't just have one person who knows what this word means. Now they knew that 100 people knew what this word means. And that was enough to say, oh, I feel like if I adopt this word, everyone else is going to know what I mean at the same time. It's not just like one influencer <laughs> trying or me trying to be an influencer and trying to say, hey, this would be a good word for this thing. Right, because words are only useful if people understand what they mean. So you could hear a word and be like, oh, that's a great word. I should start using it. But then sort of be like, well, people might not know what I mean. So I'm, I'm going to hold it back. Um, versus if you have a group of 100 people or whatever the number is who, who are using it, then you're like, okay, I have confidence that this will be understood. Exactly. And it's it's such an interesting example of how language can exist both in our heads, which it does. Like even if you take away all of the other English speakers, like I still speak English and it's still there. It's still in me. But at the same time, it also exists in this community level where, you know, part of the 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 things that are decisions that are behind my speaking English or choosing which particular words to use or choosing which new words to adopt are based on what I think other people are going to understand or what I think other people are going to use around me. You are a resident linguist at Wired uh, magazine, and I think it, that's this is a pretty uncommon position. Like most, I don't think I've ever worked <laughs> at a company that has a resident linguist. If you were the resident linguist at, say, Facebook or Twitter or any of these other social networking sites, how would you try to get the company to change the way the website is designed? Oh boy, that's a big question. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think, well, so in the context of being a resident linguist at Wired, the first site that gave me the title uh, resident linguist was The Toast, which was a, you know, RIP, <laughs> was a sort of very eclectic, you know, news slash blogging site that had a really good run for a few years. And I wrote some very weird pieces for them. Uh, and they were like, yeah, you know, <laughs> this is Gretchen. She's our resident linguist. And so when I started talking with Wired about writing that column, I said, you know, you know, if we ask the toast to see if they don't mind if we borrow their their resident linguist title, I think it would sort of work well here. Uh, and everybody thought that was a good idea. Talking about social media platforms is such a big question uh, in terms of what you do. One thing that I think is kind of interesting that could be sort of brought in from a more linguistic perspective is thinking about what are some of the naive things that people believe about language they haven't even really examined in their belief about language, but they just sort of assume that that's how things happen because that's how it works for them. So one of these is sort of name policies. There are a bunch of trans people who are currently working on trying to get Google Scholar to let people change their names, which it doesn't currently let you do. And I mean, there are lots of reasons why both trans people and cis people might want to change their name at some point in their life, and they want their publication record to keep following them. And this is something that I think if you have a sort of more nuanced understanding of names and how they work and that people do change their names, you know, this is the kind of thing that you know, from my understanding, it's a sort of very early initial coding decision to like index people's records to their actual name that has caused, made it really difficult to try to change that down the line because it isn't linked to some sort of like, you know, a string of numbers or something. So that kind of thing or things in terms of, you know, there are 7,000 languages in the world and most tech platforms support a tiny, tiny subset of that. So and it's not as straightforward to say, okay, well, we'll just flip the switch and we'll enable all of them because for a lot of languages, uh, maybe there isn't a dictionary even available in that language. Or if that dictionary exists, it was made in the 70s and it's pretty incomplete. You know, how can you take sort of a broader perspective that isn't limited to just this, you know, here's this like, you know, the Anglo perspective that I've taken in my in my particular life, but how can you take a sort of broader perspective to make tech platforms in general more welcoming for a variety of languages and a variety of experiences. I actually had the interesting experience recently of traveling to Bulgaria, where I was expecting a lot of people to not speak much English, and it turning out that actually they do speak a lot of English, and it felt almost more than the number of English speakers in, in Germany. I'm not actually sure if this is accurate, but anecdotally it felt true. And I asked them why, and they said, oh, it's because Bulgarian is a really small language. So for us to like be able to do most things besides talk to our family and like people who live in our town, we need to be able to speak English um, versus German, which is like a very large language and is supported by most platforms. And there's a lot of books and stuff written in that. Um, and that was a really interesting thing. And there are like multiple German speaking countries. You know, you can go to Austria, you can go to Switzerland or something. And you're like, oh, yeah, I could still be in German. I think I think this is true in Icelandic as well. In Iceland, there are a lot of Icelandic youth are like, oh, yeah, well, we'll use English because that gives us access to all of this sort of social social platforms and information and this sort of stuff. It's a sort of tricky question, right? People should have the right to access stuff in their own language. And it's this position of, of us as English speakers where we're like, oh yeah, everything's just available in my language. Like, that's just how it is. And you're like, well, that's not true for everybody. Even for very large languages. Like my boyfriend's a, a, a software engineer and um, he is from Argentina. But, you know, there's not 
that much software content in Spanish. I mean, it is still a lot more than probably almost any other language besides English, but he still, you know, if he wants to find a really technical document about some parser or whatever, he's going to he's going to read it in, in English. He's not going to read it in Spanish. Yeah, and and there's an interesting sense in which most programming languages are still based on English, even if they're based on this highly stylized and formalized version of English. So if you take a, you know, a language that has something like an if then statement, like the word if and the word then are going to be in English. There are some languages, so like French, I was looking, so I speak French, I live in Montreal, and I was thinking about, okay, so if in French is C, but there isn't actually really a particularly good equivalent to then in the way that you'd want to do an if-then statement in French. Like, you just use C on the one half of the sentence. Like, you can do this in English, right? Like, you can say, if it rains, I will bring my umbrella. You can also say, if it rains, then I will bring my umbrella, but you don't have to put the then in English. And in French you would almost always not put the then in and you would just say like, si il pleut, j'apporterai ma parapluie. Like you would not put another word in. Like you could put donc or something, which was sort of the thing that some French friends and I came up with is probably the closest word there. But there isn't, it's it's not as obvious a pair in another language, even one that's like had a lot of contact with English throughout its history, mutual contact throughout its history. There isn't even in something that's a fairly obvious bit of structure doesn't necessarily always have a direct correlate. And if you're learning a programming language as an English speaker, you have all of these like nice little easy mnemonics of, you know, an, an individual thing that begins with the same letter, you know, ver stands for variable. And you're like, oh, I know the word variable. That's a word I have. Whereas if you're trying to code and you're you speak a different language, there you just have to learn this arbitrary three-character string, and you don't have an obvious memory peg to put it on. And you might even need to learn this string in a script that you don't speak particularly, you don't know particularly well. You know, if you are more comfortable in Cyrillic or in Japanese, you know, hiragana and katakana and, and kanji and so on, like, you might be learning a new script at the same time. And if you say this to a lot of programmers, they get very defensive. <laughs> and I got more uh, angry emails from that Wired article than I got from like anything else I've written. <laughs> um, and uh, the and they're like, well, of course you should, but but like, but that's because you should just learn English to learn how to code anyway, because you're going to need it to learn the documentation, and the help files, and so on. And I'm like, cool. So what you're saying is, is that the situation is actually even worse, and therefore, <laughs> but also this is a lot like the arguments that people used in like medieval Europe to justify why everyone needed to learn Latin. Because if you wanted to access the technology of writing, and writing is a technology, it's not natural to humans. It's something that got invented and has gotten forgotten and has gotten adapted. Writing is a technology and there was a period in which the vernacular languages in Europe weren't being written or weren't being written very much. And so if you wanted to access writing and written things and writing things down, you first needed to learn and sort of at the same time another language in which to use the technology of writing. Nowadays, people tend to, especially people without a sort of very historical view of education, tend to look back and be like, why were they spending all this time learning Latin? Like, geez, guys, like you could have just done it in your own language, honestly. But it's for very similar reasons as to why people around the world spend a lot of time learning English. Um, and especially the sort of like, if you want to program, you need to learn English. If you want to access this particular type of technology, it currently takes place in primarily this one language in the same way that Latin 
was where a lot of the books and like learning and historical materials and religious materials and so on existed because that's what people knew how to write in. And this idea that you could write in multiple languages was still something that was being developed in people's heads. And so that seems like a very foreign perspective to us if you look at it that way, because we're used to the idea that multiple languages can be written down now, but we're still not yet used to the idea that you could potentially code in multiple languages or you could use multiple languages as a way of accessing those types of technological tools. Yeah. And something that makes a lot of this tricky is that the, there are really big returns to scale. So like it, it, it will, let's say there is a programming language written in Bulgarian with the Cyrillic alphabet and all of that. Um, there's just not that many Bulgarians. They're going to end up with just a lot less content about whatever it is, which is sort of a, a fundamental imbalance. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't we shouldn't do it, but it ends up sort of over time. It'll it just gets even more weighted in favor of the most dominant languages because there's sort of this network effect that where as the number of speakers and writers in that language gets bigger, the value of speaking that language increases as well. So is that sort of a fundamental problem or can we get, is that sort of an oversimplification? It, it's an interesting problem. There have been, and there have been, you know, a, a handful of effects uh, of attempts to write programming languages based on other languages. I think there's, I think it's Python in Chinese that someone's done, but it might be Java and Chinese, I forget which one. So there have been sort of various attempts to do this. There are also a lot of these very hilarious attempts to write programming languages based on other things. So there is a programming language that is entirely usable by Pikachus, <laughs> where all of the like units of the programming language are like P, Pika, Pikachu. And you know, all you need is like binary ones and zeros and you can ultimately kind of represent everything and so you have like a few more bits than binary because you have p and ka and chu and pika and so on and then you can just make this extremely impractical and esoteric art lang <laughs> that's not usable for a lot of programming purposes but it has this sort of stunt aspect to it but the fact that this is sort of at a similar level of feasibility to programming languages in actual languages that are spoken by millions of humans is this sort of bizarre statement of priorities. But th I think there is this, there is this tension of like, you know, the, the most useful thing with a programming language is that you can like Google it and you can find like snippets of code on Stack Exchange. You can copy and paste them into the thing you're trying to make. <laughs> so how do you do that? And I think one potential option is because programming languages have a controlled vocabulary, so maybe they only have like 20 words or something, and they're all very controlled, this actually makes them potentially really easy targets for machine translation in a way that natural languages can never compare to. Because if you're making a translation of a programming language, and like say you're taking if and you're translating it to C, if always translates to C, it never translates to anything else. It never, like, there's no sort of context dependency here. There's no, like, well, in certain pragmatic situations, it would actually be rude to blah, blah, blah. No, the computer doesn't care. Computers are, in fact, good at not caring. <laughs> so <laughs> there have been a few uh, programming languages. I think one of them is Scratch, and another one is Logo that have been designed for children. And they have like, oh, this language, this programming language actually exists in like 12 different localized versions in different languages. And so the kids can learn to program in their own language. And the idea is eventually they sort of graduate to the serious programming languages in English, which is 
maybe also an interesting statement of priorities, right? <laughs> but at the very least, it's giving them this sort of, it's a single programming language on the back end, but it's translatable on the user end to a bunch of different programming languages so kids can learn whichever one they're more comfortable in. Maybe not, you know, you don't have to like reinvent, oh, we'll we'll pay, create this new version of Java that does its own thing and is like usable for similar purposes, but it's not entirely the same. You could actually make an implementation of the same programming language that just uses different keywords for variables and things. Right. Because you would just literally replace the letters with other letters or other like images or whatever, whatever it is. And um, it's very straightforward. It could be very straightforward. I mean, there are levels of complexity more than that, right? Uh, because, you know, if you have a word that means, so like, say you have a word like C, which is actually a good example, which means if in some languages, it also means yes in other languages. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and there are some languages in which it's, it might even be a, a synonym and there's some languages where it's say for one and see for the other and things like that so you have to know like is this spanish the is this the spanish version or is this the italian version or is this the french version because we need to know whether the c means if or whether the c means yes there is a potential for for confusion it's not quite as easy as just pop it all into google translate but you know like computers can do a lot of things and i actually don't think this is one of the things they would struggle with as much as many other things we're trying to get computers to do if if people thought it was a priority it sounds relatively straightforward like if you said let's translate all of python's you know core library into mandarin as opposed to let's tr translate this podcast into mandarin the the former sounds probably much more straightforward in in uh, than than the latter i would guess Right. And like, once you did it, it would be done. You know, it wouldn't right. be as much of a, okay, we translate this podcast episode, and then we've got to translate the next podcast episode. It'll be a completely different task. It'd be like, this is a controlled vocabulary. It's a small number of words. We have to maybe have a few debates about how we're going to deal with some of the edge cases. But then once we've done it, it's done. Um, you know, so I, I don't think it's not doable, but I think it's, you know, there's a question of sort of will for who would do it because the people who currently know how to program are people who are currently comfortable in English. But that's not true of the whole world. So we're coming up on our time. Um, so let's wrap, wrap things up with one last question. Why do I feel compelled to wave at the end of Zoom calls? <laughs> I think waving is actually a really elegant solution to this sort of coordination problem at the end of Zoom calls. Um, because a Zoom call really dumps you out into the world really fast, right? Like you're there and then you're in the call and then you're back in your home at your desk. And there isn't really this sort of transitional moment where in a physical meeting, you have the sort of, okay, well, we're sort of going to pick our, our papers up, close our laptops, put all our stuff back in our bags, stand up from the table, you know, finish that water glass, walk towards the door of the meeting room, go through the door, go in the hallway. And you have all these sorts of moments in which you can be like, oh, wait, just this one more thing. Or, you know, like adjust to the idea that you're leaving. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a, a Zoom call, when you hit leave, you're out of it and you're gone. And so you want to make sure that you're on the same page as everybody else who's in the call, that we've actually all agreed that it's leaving time now. And I think a really elegant way of doing that is you can look at the screen, you can see everybody waving and you'd be like, okay, we've, we've come to consensus that leaving is what we're doing now. And so we're waving at the end. Right. Right. That makes sense. So people don't feel like it's just dropped off. Right. Because you could and, and and we do this in phone conversations to some extent too, not with the waving, obviously, because you can't wave on the phone as much. Although, interestingly, people do gesture on the phone, even though no one can see it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that gesture, in addition to being communicative, sometimes also seems to help with cognition, helps you sort of get thoughts out. But that's neither here nor there. On a phone call, what you'll see people do instead, and this has been sort of well studied by linguists, unlike Zoom calls, although I'm sure there are a bunch of linguists who are currently working on Zoom calls, and I can't wait to read their papers in like two to three years once they finally grind their way through the academic publishing system. The So you have this sort of process and a phone conversation of being like, okay, well, yep, all right, well, great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Okay, okay, <laughs> bye. And like, this is familiar, right? <laughs> Yep. And you have to have a bunch of these sort of like semantically vacuous exchanges, turns, uh, where you're not actually conveying anything, but you're just sort of coordinating around the idea that you want to be ending the call. Um, So that it's not as disruptive when you just sort of hang up at the end. Whereas like in a TV show style phone call where someone would be like, "The, the burgers are here and then they'll just hang up. And you're like, nobody does this. Right. But it's also not very interesting to watch in a TV show. So exactly. It it's really not interesting to watch a TV show. It's very understandable that you cut it out. But if you listen to a real life phone conversation, you do have these sort of semantically vacuous turns that are just serving this function of coordinating the idea that we're going to be ending the call now. Because, and, and I mean, it's not that you don't see this in a physical environment like if you've been at someone's house and you like you get up from the so you're in the living room and you're hanging out or whatever and then you're like oh well you know it's getting kind of late and so you have a few turns of like yeah better better let you go better let you get to bed and you sort of walk to the you know front door you get your coat you're standing there maybe you're putting your shoes on and you're sort of having some of those conversations there and sometimes this leads into oops we're accidentally standing at the door holding onto our coats and we've actually had another half hour conversation (laughs) and sometimes this is just the sort of you know or you start talking about the sort of mundane logistics of you know are you going to take the metro are you going to take the subway or like how are you getting back you can have have this sort of logistics conversation but you do have those sort of transitional moments in other spaces and i think it's really not surprising that we want a transitional moment like that in a video call as well i'm extremely tempted to just stop this call and jump off and, <laughs> and see how you react um but i'm not going to extremely do that to rude <laughs> this has been a really fun conversation gretchen thank you for for coming on tools and craft yeah thank you for having me this has been fun <laughs>